0: In our last episode, relations between Berger and the Shelton's broke down, owing to a variety of circumstances, the most consequential being Berger's refusal to pay the Shelton's their cut of the proceeds from local slot machines. Tensions in Williamson County were nearing a breaking point. Night of Another Sort, Prohibition Days and Charlie Berger by Gary DeNeal Chapter 16 Shotgun Shots Between the Eyes Several events that occurred in the late summer and fall of 1926 point to the kindling of the fire that would soon break into an all-out gang war. Warrants for searching the Palace Hotel, where the Sheltons were believed to have a cache of guns, were secured and Marshal McCormick, the mayor of Heron, placed a call to Adjutant General Carlos Black in Springfield, requesting that he send two of his officers to Heron to participate in an important raid. Shortly before noon on August 27th, Lieutenant Colonel Robert W. Davis of Carbondale and Major Kenneth Buchanan of Urbana were in Heron. Within an hour after their arrival, they, along with Mayor McCormick, the entire Heron police force, and several special deputies, among them Dr. Carl Baker, a local physician, were ready to begin. Why he had been ordered to stay over from the night trick was a mystery to George Wright, until he and the other members of the force arrived at the hotel entrance. As luck would have it, the weary policeman was the first to enter the foyer at the foot of the stairs.
1: I expected to be shot the minute I stepped in,
0: Wright said years later. Much to his relief on that long-ago day, no automatic barked, no machine gun chattered as he stepped through the door. Gun in hand and still half expecting a bullet to find him, he climbed the stairs. In a bedroom they found gang members Monroe Blackie Arms, Pat Pulliam, and Eddie Crompton, along with quote all sorts of guns, including, right remembered, one sawed off shotgun. Not only was there no shooting, there was also no argument. An exercise in etiquette on both sides, the raid was pronounced a success and a bright feather in Mayor McCormick's wide-brimmed hat. That night, however, Carl and Bernie Shelton and their pals Ray Walker and Floyd Jardown Arms demanded that Chief of Police George Griffiths return their weapons. When the message was relayed to McCormick, the mayor answered with a resounding no. Crompton was released the night of the raid. Arms and Pulliam were released the following day. Some time later, Wright was sitting in a police car parked out front of the city hall, when a man got in and sat down beside him. Said the stranger, I'm Charlie Berger, I guess you're wondering why I'm here. Wright assured him he was. It seems that one of his men had a pistol taken from him by one of the Sheltons, and now that a number of their guns were in police custody, he wondered if it might be returned. Insisting that he was only a hired hand, Wright advised Berger to check elsewhere. Satisfied for the moment, the gangster bade him good day and got out
1: of the car. As far as being in a temper, he was just as calm as you are now, Wright said
0: to me as we sat in a car parked near the site of the Old Palace Hotel in Heron. The night of September 12, 1926, Mr. and Mrs. Pat Pulliam and their friend Wild Bill Holland were leaving Grover's Place, a roadhouse near Heron, when bullets tore through their roadster Although seriously wounded, William drove the car to the Heron Hospital. The luck that accompanied him and his wife that night did not extend to Holland. Upon hearing the news of his death, Earl Shelton eulogized the victim, reputed to have been his brother Carl's bodyguard, as
1: the main support of his widowed mother and sister, a dear little mild-mannered chap.
0: Another who mourned the death of Wild Bill was his friend George Wright. Just off his stint on the night trick, Wright was home in bed
1: when someone knocked. It was Art Mann, one of the night men. He said, George, get up. Bill Holland's been killed. He's in the car down there in front of the hospital, and Pat Pulliam and his wife have been shot. Bill was in that car, and he was sitting on the right side. Pat had been driving the car, and Mrs. Pulliam had been sitting in between them. He, Bill, was sitting there. His eyeballs were out on his cheeks. He'd been shot in the back of the head, I suppose with a shotgun, slugs. I walked around on that side and opened the door. Back in those days, cars had running boards, and a thumb fell out on the running board. It was off of him. Later, Pat said to me he was in the emergency room and they had already put his wife to bed. George, go down there and go through Bill's pockets. He has fifty dollars, and his old mother will need that. I didn't go through his pockets to get the fifty dollars, but stayed there until the undertaker arrived with the ambulance. I told him about it and he went through the pockets and found one little old dime. Somebody had rolled him after they shot him.
0: While Holland's killing remains a mystery, officially at least, a possible solution was provided by a former Burger gangster in a letter to this writer. The careful reader will notice that his account does not match George Wright's exactly. So be it. To quote, Wild Bill was killed by Burger. It happened during a raid by the Burger gang on a roadhouse between Johnston City and Heron. Shelton's were known to be there at the time of the raid. And those that could got away fled except for wild bill and pat pulliam and his wife also shot in the gun battle i was not a witness but quoting those who were charlie came up behind wild bill and said turn around you son of a bitch so you can see who's killing you two days later an ambulance was traveling from heron to benton in front was the driver joe nolan and his father E.B. nolan lying on a cot in the back Under the watchful eye of his mother and his longtime friend, Strawberry Wells, was the wounded Pat Pulliam. Ed Russell, another friend, followed in his automobile. A third car was driven by the patient's father, Fred Pulliam. In the fourth and last automobile were Pat's wife and his father-in-law, Bert Stewart. When the tiny caravan reached Johnson City, Fred Pulliam remembered that he had forgotten the x-rays, and he turned back toward Heron. For reasons unexplained, Mrs. Pulliam and her father also decided to return to Heron. All was well until the ambulance neared the Benton Cemetery south of town. Roaring up from the south came a car carrying five or six well-armed men, one of whom shouted for the driver to stop. When Nolan refused, the car pulled out in front. Again came the order, and this time the driver had no choice but to pull over. While the two Nolans and Wells were taken at gunpoint across the road and guarded, two of the gangsters, one bearing a machine gun, and the other a pistol, entered the ambulance. Mrs. Pulliam screamed. As well as she could, this woman of rare pluck tried to shield her son's body with her own, taking as she did a number of blows across the hands and arms. Pressing his weapon to her side, the man with the machine gun ordered her out of the way, to which she replied that she would die before allowing herself to be pulled away. This time, as before, the luck of Pat Pulliam held. He took a couple of blows to the head. Those that were more an afterthought than an attempt to kill him perhaps were a reminder that while doling out rare acts of charity, the burger gang felt obliged to set a price, in this instance a strong headache. It should be mentioned that while the beating was in progress, a number of drivers passed by, but no one was foolish enough to stop. Details of Pulliam's second brush with death were hardly out of print when fresh atrocities crowded the main pages of southern Illinois newspapers. One concerned the body found in the ashes of an abandoned farmhouse in the Pulley's Mill area south of Marion on the night of September 17, 1926. Later, the remains would be identified as those of Lyle Shag Warsham, a native of West Frankfurt and an acquaintance of both factions. The following day, yet another body, this one badly decomposed, was found in a timbered hog lot north of Shawnee Town. This well-dressed man of forty or so had been shot between the eyes with what appeared to be a shotgun slug. On his chest stood an empty shotgun shell, and folded in the watch pocket of his trousers was half of a five-dollar bill. He was a shotgun shot between the eyes and the awfulest smelling man I ever smelled, said Bill Bunch, who was police chief at Old Shawneetown at the time of the interview. You could smell him a mile away. Buzzards done eatin' his eyes and part of his nose off. When word reached Williamson County that another body had been located, Arlie O. Boswell and one or two others drove over to see if they could provide identification, but they were unsuccessful. Still, because the Burger Gang was often seen in Shawnee Town, it was generally assumed that the victim was killed either by the Burger or the Shelton Gang. Interestingly enough, Connie Ritter was in charge of the roadhouse near the hog lot where the body was found, and as proprietor, he lifted many a glass of homebrew with the locals among them Bill Bunch. Ritter certainly wasn't above suspicion. The same could be said of Helen Holbrook, who was called to testify before the coroner's jury. There is even a story, one that became almost a tradition, that the body in question had lain atop her Richson mansion for some time prior to its transfer to the wooded lot. Neither killer nor victim was ever properly identified, although the writer did hear that the latter's nickname was Smokey. Two and a half weeks later, Art Newman and his wife Bessie were driving west from Harrisburg toward Shady Rest when a two and a half ton truck came rumbling toward them. Protruding from the circular steel tank at the back was an assembly of weapons, all of them well aimed toward the couple. In the ensuing gunfire, 25 bullets tore through the car, but only Bessie was wounded and she only slightly. Swerving the car back toward Harrisburg, that city of refuge for Berger and his friends, Art Newman easily outpaced the lumbering vehicle with its murderous crew. Covering those few miles back to Harrisburg in safety, the clever gambler, soon to be Berger's right-hand man, had plenty to ponder. Chapter 17. Art Newman and Connie Ritter Until the attack, Newman had not been particularly close to Berger although he had supplied him with whiskey from time to time. Both had lived in Macoopen County, Newman in Gillespie and Berger in Staunton. But it may be that Newman was telling the truth when he said the two were introduced to each other in East St. Louis by their mutual friend Carl Shelton. At the time of this alleged introduction, Art Newman was the owner and proprietor of the Arlington Hotel a noted hangout in East St. Louis for small-time crooks and prostitutes, and an ideal spot for plying one's trade as gambler and bootlegger. Working as a night clerk at the Arlington was Freddie Wooten, who had labored with Newman years before in the coal mines near Gillespie, or so he claimed. Like his boss, Wooten was equally agile with a deck of cards or a pair of dice, and he was far more articulate in conversation. In fact, he was considerably brighter than most men of his stripe, according to a former burger gangster who knew him well. Fresh from the sticks of Wayne County came three down-and-outers named Carl, Earl, and Bernie Shelton. Newman took pity on the trio, providing them with bed and board, and even loaning them money to get started in their bootlegging operation. Eventually, Earl would haul booze up from Florida for his brothers to sell at their saloon on 19th Street and Market Avenue in East St. Louis. Newman fails to mention that all three of the Sheltons were well acquainted with St. Louis and East St. Louis long before he met them. Anyway, all was cozy at the Arlington until Bessie got tired of the freeloaders and their bumpkin ways. Particularly galling to her was their habit of cleaning their weapons in the lobby. Her husband could and did overlook that, as well as the stolen tires they crammed into his garage. But being a family man, he, at last, had to accede to his wife's wishes. The Sheltons had to go, and they went, across the street to the Savoy. Despite this rift, their friendship remained more or less intact until three days after their mutual enemy, S. Glenn Young, was shot and killed by their mutual friend, Ora Thomas, moments before Thomas was mortally wounded. On the day of Thomas's burial, July 27th, someone robbed the mail messenger at Collinsville of $15,000. Convinced that his former tenants were responsible for the crime, Newman asserted that the real reason the Sheltons wanted to attend the Thomas Funeral in Heron was to provide themselves an alibi. Unfortunately, the brothers and Newman arrived too late for the funeral, although they did meet the party returning from the cemetery one of the mourners advised them to return post-haste to East St. Louis via the back roads, because by now Young's friends in the Ku Klux Klan would have blocked the more widely available route. It was advice not to be taken lightly, and they took it, arriving in East St. Louis that night. Once back in familiar territory, Newman, without thinking, walked into one of the back rooms of the Shelton Saloon, There he saw Carl and some other men seated around a table, the top of which was heaped with money.
1: See you later, Art,
0: Carl said in a none too friendly tone. At that point, the friendship between the two men really began to fall apart, Newman said. So much so, in fact, that about two months later, a fellow by the name of Charlie Gordon was induced to pick a quarrel with him. A quarrel Carl hoped would be the death of the sharp little East St. Louis gambler, bootlegger, and hotel proprietor. As it turned out, Gordon was the one who got killed. Following his acquittal for Gordon's murder in 1925 on grounds of self-defense, Art Newman sold the Arlington and for more than a year worked out of Memphis, running booze and rattling the dice. Traversing almost the entire South, this tireless fellow chased the dollar bill with marked success, yet yearned to return to East St. Louis, and did. Unfortunately, His former pals had neither forgotten nor forgiven. They had, in fact, started a rumor that he had robbed and dynamited a moonshine still in Madison County, Illinois. Now he had not only to scan the alleys for Shelton thugs, but also to keep a weather eye open for irate moonshiners. Poised as he was between the two possibilities, Newman felt the only sensible thing to do was pull up stakes and join Charlie Burger, who was lately warring with the Unpredictable Brothers. Wooten, who had made the mistake of siding with his old workmate the night of Gordon's killing, had reason to believe that he too would suffer the wrath of the Shelton's, so for his own protection he also joined the Burgers. Like Newman, he quickly became one of the top men in the gang. Shortly after arriving in Harrisburg, Newman, accompanied by Berger, chanced to meet Helen Holbrook on the street. Hardly had they parted when Carl Shelton's phone rang in East St. Louis. Having received Helen's astonishing message about the company Newman was now keeping, Shelton placed three calls to Berger's home. His darkest fears were confirmed by the no comment from the other end of the line. Carl Shelton's own comment came the next day when he and his men sighted in on Newman and his wife west of Harrisburg. It is not clear if they actually were looking for Newman or simply happened upon their former benefactor while prowling for other game, such as the boys who had routed them from Grover's place the night Bill Holland was killed. Prior to their sighting the Newmans, The Sheltons in their truck passed through Marion, causing some citizens to mistake the unwieldy vehicle for a gasoline truck. Others were alert enough to notice the guns protruding from the sides. Next time. I told you that son of a bitch was following us, the gang leader said, adding as the others brought forth their machine guns, we ought to go right back and kill the son of a bitch now.